Well, tonight, <laughs> um, I'm going to look at Psalm 110 with you all. Um, so in this series of the Psalms, uh, we're, we're looking at this book um, that's the longest in the Old Testament. And it's, it's a book that's filled with prayers. So on the one hand, we've been saying that the Psalms teach you how to pray. Uh, but what I want to do tonight is actually look at the Psalms under a different aspect. And that's to look at the Psalms as a book of prophecy. Um, now the Bible, the whole Bible, is a book of prophecy. It's a book that actually claims to tell exactly what is going to happen before it's happened. Um, which is why, as some people have said, uh, if that claim is true, then the Bible is truly more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper. And, and most importantly of all, the one event that the Bible most predicts has to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. And so tonight, as we look in the Old Testament, this actually can help just make sense of the entire Old Testament. You know, uh, the, the Old Testament is kind of a confusing book. It's long, it's bizarre, it has lots of long genealogies. What's that about? Uh, which is one of the reasons why you might have heard people at Thrive say before that the Old Testament tends to be the crispy pages section of your Bible. Because, you know, let's face it, most Christians probably don't read as much of the Old Testament as they do of the New Testament. Uh, I think I actually may be an exception to this rule. I'm a bad Christian. I love the Old Testament. I would read it probably more than... Anyway, don't listen to me. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, the, the way to actually understand the Old Testament, to make sense of what is all in this crazy part of the Bible, is to recognize that the Old Testament is a prophetic book, and it foretells the coming of Jesus. So actually, for any Bible nerds here tonight, um, I actually have a little outline up on the screen. This is the kind of thing where maybe you might want to you know, pull out a phone and take a snapshot of it, because it's actually it's a pretty handy little way to understand the Old Testament. And uh, what you can see on the, the next slide here, theoretically, oh, there it is. Yeah, so, so look at this, you know, you get the first five books of the Bible, this is sometimes called the Pentateuch. That's the foundation. The foundation of the whole rest of Scripture actually tells you that there is a promised Messiah who's going to come. Then you've got Joshua to Esther. Those are the historical books. That's a demonstration of the foundation. It's basically working out all of the things that the foundations say are going to happen in history. And so it actually specifically uh, does, does that and also shows you uh, what uh, the, the lineage of the Messiah is going to be. It traces the Messiah's family all the way back uh, through biblical history. Job the Song of Solomon. This is aspiration. These are uh, psalms and songs of God's people longing for the coming of the Messiah. Um, and then finally, Isaiah and Malachi. These are the prophetic books. These you might call expectation. And so they are filling out in more detail through these really incredible prophecies. What is it going to be like when Jesus comes? So you've got foundation, demonstration, aspiration, expectation. Uh, that one's for free. And the psalms here, as you can tell, um, it belongs to this middle section of what you might call aspiration. And sure enough, as you look at the psalms, dozens and dozens of psalms are all these prophecies that look ahead to the coming of the Messiah. I don't know if you ever thought about the book of Psalms in that way, but just as an example, think of Psalm 22, which begins with the famous line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry that Jesus cries on the cross. It's a prophecy of what he would do in his death and resurrection. Um, you know, other examples would be like Psalm 2, which is a prophetic psalm when Jesus comes back. Uh, the one we're looking at tonight, Psalm 110, is the big kahuna. It's the big kahuna because uh, this, this psalm, more than any other chapter, probably in the entire Old Testament, tells you more about Jesus than any other chapter. Um, this psalm is quoted more than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So it's fair to say that this little psalm actually contains what you might call an entire like New Testament theology in miniature. And so what that means is that you can't do a series on the book of Psalms without looking at Psalm 110. It's the big kahuna. Uh, and this psalm that we're going to see actually gives you an incredible sort of identity card of, of who the Messiah is going to be when he comes. So you can't not know about this psalm, so that's why I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> 
So tonight we're going to look at the Psalm 110 and we're going to uh, look at it by asking the question uh, of this psalm. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Simple question. Amazing answers uh, that, that you'll find. So uh, you know, look, there are lots of different religions out there. Um, and maybe uh, there are some people here who would subscribe to some other religion or lack of religion other than Christianity. And the question is, you know, with all these different religions making all these different kinds of claims, uh, what's unique about Jesus? What's unique about Jesus? What's true about Jesus? You know, there's been no person in human history who's been more distorted or misunderstood than Jesus. And that's true uh, even by Christians. And so the question is, how do I actually know that I'm believing in the real Jesus? How do I know I'm believing in the real Jesus rather than just some made-up conception of Jesus in my head? Well, Psalm, 101 is going to, uh, Psalm 110 is going to tell us uh, that, that answer to that question as well. And it's going to do us this by giving us three different truths about who Jesus is. Three different truths about who Jesus is. So number one, it's going to tell us something about the two natures, the two comings, and the two offices of Jesus Christ. The two natures, the two comings, the two offices of Jesus Christ. So, there you go. There's your outline. Let's read this psalm, and then I'm going to dive right in. So, Psalm 110. Comes right after Psalm 109. If I can find it here. Okay, here we go. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay, so six little verses. There are a lot of very bizarre things in this psalm, by the way. Um, even just as I was reading it now, you can kind of notice that there's a lot of things in here that are hard to understand. Um, so hopefully by the time I'm done, it'll make a little bit more sense. But uh, first of all, there are two natures of Jesus Christ that this psalm is talking about. Now, you're probably wondering what I'm, what I'm talking about. Well, let me show you. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, okay, what's going on here? Well, you've got a cast of characters in this psalm. So first of all, you've got the, 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 the first character mentioned here, which is the Lord. Now, it's unfortunate how our English Bibles translate this, because in Hebrew, the word here is actually Yahweh. So, so Yahweh, that's God's personal name. This is God that we're talking about. And you can tell that there's also uh, another person here. There's a little conversation going on in this first verse. So God is talking to, talking to someone whom David, King David, who wrote this psalm, calls his Lord. So uh, the, the Hebrew word for Lord there is actually not Yahweh, it's Adonai, that's just the generic word for Lord. But this actually propo- uh, proposes, um, it poses a remarkable little puzzle. Because think about this, the author of this psalm is King David. Now King David, he's the absolute monarch over all of Israel. You know, there's no one alive within Israel who's higher than King David. Um, you know, and at the height of his reign, there was no one outside of Israel uh, who was greater than, than King David was. And on top of that, we know that when David says, my Lord here, he's, he, he's not talking about Yahweh because Yahweh's already been mentioned. So what that means is that this person that David calls his Lord is someone else. 
Someone who's higher than the highest man who was alive on the face of the earth at that time, King David himself. And and so it's not God, it's not David. The question is, who could it be? Who else could there be who is greater than David? Well, good question. (laughs) And evidently, it was such a good question that Jesus thought uh, thought it was a good question too. And he used it in the New Testament. Uh, when he was challenged by the Pharisees. So you might remember this. If you look at uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record a little story where one day Jesus has been challenged by the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders who don't like him, who want to kill him. And he asks them a question about this very psalm. So uh, if, you, if you want to actually follow along with this, just turn to Matthew chapter 22, uh, starting around verse 40, and, and you can see where this story appears. So the Pharisees, they're familiar with Psalm 110. And like Jesus, they believed that this was a psalm that was a prophecy about the Messiah. Uh, And the reason for that is if you read the rest of verse 1, what you find out is that that whoever this person is that that, that Yahweh is talking to is a pretty important person who only could be the Messiah. So you look again at verse 1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now to sit at God's right hand was an expression that means to be equal with God. And the only other person in the Bible of whom this could be true, is the Messiah. And so, you know, it makes sense then why when the Pharisees read this verse, you know, and when Jesus read this verse, uh, they knew that Psalm 110 was about the Messiah. And they knew from other places in the Bible that the Messiah would be a, would be a descendant of King David. And so, what happens here is that in Matthew 22, verse 45, Jesus asks the Pharisees this, this simple little question. He says, well, now wait, if David calls him Lord... You know, the Lord said to my Lord, right? So if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So, you know, putting this another way, Jesus is asking, how could King David, the most powerful man on earth, worship one of his kids? You ever think about that? Like, I I don't know about you, but like when I was a kid, my parents uh, didn't worship me or any of my siblings. If anything, it kind of had to be the other way around. Like, you respect them. (laughs) So, So the only explanation is that if King David, it is that King David's son has got to be more than just any old son. The only explanation is that the Messiah has to both be a human descendant of King David, but also a divine incarnation of the living God, which is exactly who Jesus claimed to be. The two titles that he applied to himself when he was on earth was the Son of Man and the Son of God. And so the reason why Jesus' question is so brilliant, the reason why after this, if you, if you read on the Pharisees, it says that the Pharisees were afraid to ask him any more questions. They were just like totally, you know, stopped in their tracks by this mic drop Jesus moment. The, re- the reason that this question is so brilliant is that Jesus is using Psalm 110 to show the Pharisees that, that they were blinded to the very truth of their own scriptures. So isn't this crazy? What Psalm 110 has done in just one little verse is it's given you the doctrine of the two natures of Christ. You know, this is the teaching that's been believed by Christians all down through the ages that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Or to put this in another way, he has both a divine nature and a human nature. Okay, so there's the teaching. And I want to actually step back for a minute and and ask the, the, the bigger question, well, okay, why does that matter? You know, I've just said Psalm 110 is trying to teach you, teach you doctrine. It's trying to teach you the teaching about who Jesus is. And, you know, I can almost hear your eyes kind of glaze over. You know, you're thinking, oh, man, like the word doctrine. Even the word sounds boring, you know. Or you're thinking, man, doctrine, like, isn't that just a tool to oppress people? 
you know, to force everyone to believe the same thing that, that you Christians believe, you know, isn't that narrow, isn't that exclusive? But what I want, what I'll show you here, here here's, here's my case, is that it's actually anything but these things. That doctrine is, is actually is dramatic. Um, it's dynamic. Uh, if you let it, it'll change your life. Uh, and, and watch, I'll, let me show you how. What difference does it actually make that Jesus has two natures, that he's both fully God and fully man? Well, the difference it makes is that if you don't grasp the two natures of Jesus, you might be worshiping the wrong God. You might be worshiping the wrong God. So if Jesus were just God and not man, then you know what he'd be. Jesus would be your worst nightmare. Now think about this. God means supreme power, means supreme rule, means supreme justice. And you know, like, of course... (laughs) You see that Jesus is that in this psalm, because if you keep reading the rest of the psalm, then you'll notice that this is a battle psalm. Like, there's a war going on, and Jesus is coming back as conquering king to reign over his enemies. So, you know, that's why in Scripture he's compared to a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you know, like, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but the neat thing about this is that, look, in the last six months, give or take, in our country, I've never lived through a time in which the United States of America has begun to clamber for justice like never before. Um, and if Jesus is God, what that means is that he actually can fulfill that longing. Because as God, Jesus can bring justice by righting wrongs, by judging sin, by destroying evil. But the thing is, like, look, if he's only God, then he's your worst nightmare. Because if Jesus is only God and he's only going to eliminate justice by just destruction, then wouldn't that mean that he would have to destroy you and destroy me? Because as Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said, the dividing line between good and evil passes right through every single human heart. I mean, just stop and think about what it is that you're actually asking for when you're asking for justice. To ask for justice, you have to be consistent. And, you know, where would you ask God to stop? You know, if God were consistently getting rid of evil, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't he... uh, Would he stop with just the really bad people, like the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world? You know, what about petty thieves and white liars and, and, and you know, high school bullies? I mean, wouldn't we, wouldn't we acknowledge that there's such a thing as the butterfly effect, that even the tiniest moments of our sin and selfishness can utterly wreak havoc on the life of another person? You know, actually, I remember a number of years ago um, that there, uh, I, I just graduated from high school, I think it was, and I remember hearing that there was a girl who had been in my year who a couple of months after graduation had taken her own life. And I didn't know this girl very well, but you know what I did remember? was I remembered back to a time in second grade. This was years before. And, and um, I, 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 for like, I think the short span of about half a year had been in the same class as this girl. And I just, like, God just brought back this memory of this one time that I had made fun of this girl. And, and you know, I don't know what effect it had on her, but I remember thinking to myself that day, like, what if that just was one of many, many seeds that brought such despair into the life of another person? That, you know, train, you know, just the, 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 the sum effect of all those things led to what happened. I mean, if we're really going to be consistent, then don't you have to admit that every single human being, ourselves included, are complicit in evil? If God is really going to come and judge and bring justice to get rid of evil, then wouldn't he also have to get rid of us? So on the one hand, like, you wouldn't want Jesus to just be but it would be equally bad if Jesus were just man and not God. You know, so like if, if Jesus' divinity is why the Bible calls him a lion, then he, his humanity would be the reason why the Bible can also call him a lamb. 
I mean, it's, of course, it's a reference to the fact that Jesus, when he came, he, was, he came in humility. Um, he came in lowliness. He came in the form of a weak human being. Um, and if anything, that would probably be our culture's favorite version of Jesus. You know, we live in a culture that loves the idea of Jesus as a, as a lamb, but not a lion. Um, you know, we, we would embrace the idea that Jesus is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness, which is true. But we'd be allergic to the idea as a culture that, that Jesus is a God of ultimate justice, of moral absolutes, of absolute truth. You know, that Jesus has the right to look into every single human heart and say, that is sin, that is wrong. But think about it from this side. Would you really want Jesus to just be human and not God either? You know, one modern person who thought that he did, but actually realized he didn't, uh, is a guy who was, uh, he's a Croatian theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf. And I'm going to read you a quote of his where he uh, is, is reflecting on actually what a good thing it is that Jesus is a God of wrath and justice rather than just a gentle, holy human being. Here's what he says. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God. Is love. Amen. Hmm. It's interesting that we in our culture right now are crying out for justice, but very often we don't even allow God the same privilege. We wouldn't want a God who was just merely God and, and, or just merely a, a mere human being. The two natures of Jesus Christ show you him as he truly is. And let me actually give you one more angle for thinking about this. Think about it this way. Imagine if, you know, if Jesus were only God. Think about what that would mean for how you relate to him. If he were only God, then the way that we would probably relate to him would be as though he were an unforgiving boss. You know, there's no way that you could ever connect with God just on your own. You know, if God, think about this, like if God is really the one who created a universe of billions and billions of galaxies, I mean, do you really think that that's the kind of person that you can invite into your life just to be your own personal assistant? I mean, what could you possibly give to a God like that to even to, to just persuade him to give you the time of day? I mean, it would be like being a warehouse worker for Amazon and expecting Jeff Bezos to take you out to lunch, you know. And, and you know, what we try to do is we try to, like, imagine to ourselves, well, but yeah, but what if, 
you know? What if I'm a ladder climber? Like, what if I, I work my tail off and I become the best warehouse worker that Amazon has ever seen? And then they promote me to management, and then they promote me to corporate, and then they promote me to executive leadership. And then finally, you know, one day I'm passing Jeff Bezos in the hall, and he's like, you know, hey, you're that guy, aren't you? You know, you're the guy who, who worked his way up all the way from warehouse to management. And, and you know, you've been the, the most valuable person in our company to date. And he admires you. He's amazed at you. He's amazed at your performance. And, and, and one day, finally, Jeff Bezos says, hey, I want to take you out to lunch. And because it's Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, it's probably a pretty good lunch, too. <laughs> and we sometimes try to treat God that way. You know, thinking that, like, oh, you know, if I just climb the ladder, if I just impress God with my, like, amazing Christian life, if I just, like, show him how, how amazing of a person I am, then, you know, he'll, he'll take me out to lunch, too. You know, he'll, he'll give me the time of day. He'll be impressed with me. But look, this scenario is absolutely insane. Number one, because it could never happen. Like if you actually think about who you're talking about, you're talking about God, he's, the, the, the latter is infinite. And two, the second reason it's insane is that it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I mean, can you, you would bleed yourself dry trying to climb a ladder to the top. You can never get to God that way. You can never relate to God as though he's just a, an unforgiving boss. But this is what we do all the time. Are, are, and I just want to ask you, is this the way that you are relating to Jesus tonight? Are you trying to impress Jesus with your performance? Are you saying to yourself, man, if only I could just stop looking at pornography, then I would feel like God loves me. Are you saying to yourself, if I only became a missionary and did some radical thing for God, you know, then I could feel like an okay Christian. It is exhausting try to relate to God that way because you will never be enough. So that's one way you could relate to God, but the other way is just as bad. It's to relate to Jesus as though he's just a mere man. You know, not the cosmic king of the universe before whom right now countless heavenly creatures are literally crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But, you know, you just kind of relate to him as a human being. Just kind of like, he's your buddy, old pal. And, and he's just kind of another nice guy that you don't have to obey, that you don't have to take seriously, who doesn't care about how you live, whom you don't have to one day stand before and give an account of how you lived your life. You know, the kind of Jesus who really isn't the center of the universe, he's really just a pushover. And you know who's in the center of the, the universe if you think that Jesus is just a man? You are. That's what it's really about. All of it is just a ploy for life to be all about you. This is American dream Christianity. This is prosperity gospel Christianity, which is not the real gospel at all. <laughs> and unfortunately, this is what our country has probably exported around the world um, to greater damage than any other thing. <laughs> just a little God that you can, like not even a God, a mere man that you can just fit in your pocket rather than a God who's worthy of your worship, who's worth not just living for, but dying for. You wouldn't want to relate to Jesus just as a mere man. But what if, as Psalm 110 says, he's actually both God and man. What if instead of relating to him as just an, like an unforgiving boss at the top of the cosmic ladder, what if the true boss actually came down to you? And what if the cross was the way that he did that? Where on the cross, the one who was perfectly God and perfectly man offered himself as a perfect sacrifice so that we could sit across the table of fellowship, not with just like Jeff Bezos, but with the holy, humble one who is the lion and the lamb.
Only because Jesus was God and man could he do this. You know, if you think about what the cross means, the cross was a judgment. Like on the cross, Jesus was being judged in our place for sin. But the Bible says that sin, I mean, yes, sin is against our fellow human beings, but ultimately sin is against God. Psalm 51 verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so if on the cross, the one on the cross is not actually God, then every person in this room is bound for hell. Because the cross would have been a failure. On the cross, it had to be God who was forgiving us. Because he was the one we sinned against. This is why Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, which don't believe that Jesus is God, are false religions. Because Jesus has to be God. It has to be God on the cross for the cross to truly have triumphed. But on the other hand, the one on the cross had to also be fully man because it's the, it was the human race that was guilty. Jesus had to be our fully human representative who stood in our place as the object of God's wrath under, against a race that was under judgment. So look, like the amazing thing about just even the first verse of Psalm 110 is it's telling you that the one who was the Messiah to come into the world, he's not just a mere man. He's not just merely God. He's both. He's God and man. And it's good news that that's the case. So, number one, the two natures. Number two, the two comings. This is crazy to me. Look at this. This is actually still just in the very first verse. Look at verse one one more time. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So uh, there's God's right hand again, that phrase. Um, now, question is, where is that? Where is God's right hand? You know, does God actually have like a hand, you know, and you just kind of like, like come up and touch it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, you know, it's a figure of speech. And it refers to where God is, to a place of honor you know, right at God's side. And we know uh, from the New Testament that uh, when Jesus ascended, he went back into heaven um, after his resurrection, and he sat down at the Father's right hand. And the reason it says sat down is because he finished the work on the cross that God had given him to do. When he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. That there's nothing more that human beings can do to add to that work. That it's not as though anything that we do can impress God to love us any more than he already does. God can't love you any more than he already does. The work is finished. Jesus sat down to demonstrate that. And so he's there right now um, at the Father's right hand wielding all sovereignty and authority and, and control over the universe. It's crazy to think about the fact that at the helm of the universe right now is a human being. don't know if you've ever thought about that. But... The Bible says, this psalm says in verse 1, that Jesus won't always be there. It says, sit at my right hand until, until when? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So in other words, one day, there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to return from heaven to earth to put down all his enemies and take up his rightful place as king. So just getting all these details straight, right? We know the Messiah is a descendant of David. Step one. He's a real flesh and blood human being who walked on the earth. Uh, but a flesh and blood human being who was taken up into heaven for a period of time until he comes back to earth to reign. And so just like that, you have Psalm 110 pointing to the prediction that the Messiah comes not just once, but twice. The first time, Jesus came to bear judgment through dying on the cross in our place. But the second time he comes... He comes to bring judgment on all those who have rejected him. 
Now, the first time Jesus came, uh, this was not what they expected. They did not expect that there would be two comings. They expected the Messiah would show up once. He would come in power. You know, he would trounce the Romans. He would restore the kingdom to Israel. He would reign on earth forever. You know, that's kind of the, the standard script. And, and the disappearance into heaven thing, you know, Jesus like ascending back into heaven wasn't on their radar. And interestingly enough, today it's just the opposite. Like it wasn't on their radar back then. But for us, you know, we've, we who've lived after that first coming have almost completely forgotten the second coming. That Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And by the way, I just can't help just take this little sidebar. I, I honestly believe that that could happen in our lifetime. When you look at what the Bible says about um, some of the things that are predicted to happen before Jesus returns. You know, some of this has to do with the significance of uh, God's continued plans for the Jewish people. Some of those things have to do with just global circumstances that seem to be depicted um, in, in books like Revelation. It's just, it's not out of the question that it could happen in, in this generation. You know, just, I know some of you um, who are Bible nerds might kind of appreciate this little detail, but, you know, it's kind of interesting to me. Remember when Jesus is passing through um, this, uh, in, in John chapter 4, he, has to, he stays with the Samaritans on his way to Jerusalem. You know, this is the Samaritan woman story. It says he stays there two days. You know, there's another part in the book of Hosea where it speaks about the Jewish people being rejected for two days and then on the third day he'll restore us. And it's not been lost um, on many people that in the Bible it speaks of a day with God being like a thousand years. Well, we're literally, within the next ten years, coming to about the two thousand year point since Jesus died, buried, and was raised. Um, and so if there's anything to that, which I can't prove to you, um, then, then who knows? <laughs> um, but the point, regardless, you know, we, can't, we can speculate that we don't know when he'll come back. But the point is, is that he is going to come back. And I want to just point out why the fact of these two comings actually, truly, really um, matters. So, you know, we said that if you forget about the two natures of Jesus, you might be worshiping the wrong God. Well, if you forget about the two comings, then you might be living for the wrong kingdom. You might be living to the wrong kingdom. Now, uh, what I mean by this uh, is, is just kind of by way of a little, a little example. Um, today, it was actually just today, I was just browsing through a bunch of news articles, and, um, or I think it was on Twitter, and I saw this headline um, that was really, really heart, heartbreaking. It said that during the course of the pandemic, uh, that one in four young adults in America have contemplated suicide. That's like millions of people. Um, and, and this is a sign, I think, of just how deeply gripped our country is by despair and hopelessness right now. Um, and, and the reality is, if Jesus is not coming back, then that despair is the truth. I mean, it literally is all we've got. Because the only thing that the kingdom of this world can offer is a future that is totally unknown and totally unpredictable, except maybe for the fact that one day the sun is going to go out and it will kill us all if we haven't already done, if we haven't already killed ourselves. You know, like... Not a very bright picture of the future. And so what that means is that, like, literally, like, right now, I feel like there's hardly been a time when the church has been more in need of hearing about the second coming of Jesus, and yet when at the same time the church is so ignorant about what the Bible says about the second coming of Jesus. It's just not something that we talk about very often in church. Because if Jesus comes back, it changes everything. It means that there's not just this kingdom of this world. There's another kingdom that's on its way. That, that one day there actually is going to be true justice. That one day all that's sad is going to be made untrue. Uh, that if you believe in Jesus, one day your joy is going to be full. And the thing is, the reason this matters is that you're going to adopt the values of whatever kingdom you're focusing on. 
You're going to adopt the values of whatever kingdom you're focusing on. And if you're going to focus on what's happening in this world, forgetting about the kingdom that's coming, then you're going to probably become more and more like this world. You're going to believe that the best hope for, our, for, for, for the world, for our country, is, is who wins the next election. You know, just, just for example. <laughs> not saying the election doesn't matter. But, but look, like, as Christians, our hope is not in whether Donald Trump gets reelected. It's not whether Donald Trump gets unelected. The, the, the true hope that we have is not the one who sits in the Oval Office. It's the one who sits at God's right hand. <laughs> and man, if we think about, the, about, about solely this, you know, this side of eternity, forgetting that Jesus is coming back, we're going to get engrossed in the things of this world that don't matter. They're going to suck us away. They're going to distract us from Jesus. They're going to take away our witness for him. And, and you might actually find yourself throwing your life away on things that don't matter. You know, so remember, in, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus tells. And it's the story about a rich man. He says, you know, there's this guy who's really, really rich. And he, he, he says that uh, this man's focus is to build bigger barns to store away all of his many possessions. And what does God call him in this story? He calls him a fool. He calls him a fool. Luke 12, 20, he says, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And the reality is, if you're living for this world, rather than for Christ's kingdom, then you are a fool. I love you enough to tell you that. <laughs> um, and I want to tell myself that, too, because I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. But look, the reality is, is that all the things that we selfishly pursue for ourselves, rather than for Jesus, are not going to last. You can't take them with you. They have no eternal significance. Only the things that are done for Jesus will last. And so the question is, are you living for the right kingdom? And if you're here tonight as a Christian, I, I want to I address a couple of just reflective questions to you. These come um, from Randy Alcorn's really great book on heaven. And they really just kind of stop you in your tracks. I just want to read a couple of these. Number one, do I daily reflect on my own mortality. Number two, do I daily realize that there are only two destinations, heaven or hell, and that I and every person I know will go to one or the other? Number three, do I daily remind myself that this world is not my home and that everything in it will burn, leaving behind only what's eternal? Number four, do I daily recognize that my choices and actions have a direct influence on the world to come? Number five, do I daily realize that my life is being examined by God, the audience of one, and that the only appraisal of my life that will ultimately matter is his? And then one more, do I daily reflect on the fact that my ultimate home will be the new earth, where I will see God and serve him as a resurrected being in a resurrected human society where I will overflow with joy and delight in drawing nearer to God by studying him and his creation and where I will exercise to God's glory dominion over his creation. You know, there's a little part in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy uh, where one of the characters says of his friend who has just come back from another planet... He says, a man who has been in another world does not come back unchanged. 
And if you go to heaven every day, I'm not talking literally, but figuratively, if you let your heart and your mind be captivated by the truth that Jesus is coming back, you'll invest in the things that truly matter and last. So, see, I told you, isn't this amazing, this little song, you know? Like, we've, this is just the first verse. And look at, look at how much stuff is in here. Um, you know, so, so, so far, it seems that Jesus, he's got two natures. He's God and man. He's got two comings. Wants to bear judgment, wants to bring judgment. And then last and finally, this psalm says something about the fact that uh, Jesus has two offices. Uh, now, the first office uh, that I'm referring to, I'm not talking about like a little office with a desk. You know, I'm talking about like a role you know, that someone would, uh, would play. Uh, the first office is the office of king. You, know, you read this psalm, and it's pretty clear that Jesus is the king of Psalm 110. You, know, you read the rest of the psalm, he's given absolute total authority over the entire earth. Uh, but according to verse 4, uh, you find out that there's actually another office that he occupies, not just of king, uh, but of priest. And, uh, you know, just worth saying, by the way, uh, theologians say there's actually a third office, which is the office of prophet, king, priest, and prophet. Uh, but anyway, uh, right here, the focus is on the fact that he's a priest. So look at verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this, uh, this statement here is pretty remarkable because what it's saying is that Jesus will be both king and priest at the same time. Uh, and, and by the way, this is what human societies have always been looking for. Um, you know, There's a little quote that, uh, about this psalm that explains why this is. Uh, let me just read it for you. It says, One of the extraordinary features of the kingdom is that the Lord Jesus will combine in his person the dual offices of king and priest. It is a combination that is highly dangerous in the case of mere human rulers. The loud, long cry for separation of church and state has not been without valid cause. But the combination is ideal when Jesus is ruler. Uncorrupted kingship and spiritual priesthood will give the world an administration such as it has longed for but has never known. Isn't that crazy? You know, one of the things that's so exciting to think about when you think about Jesus coming back is that, you know, we oftentimes think about heaven as kind of just this place with clouds and harps. It's kind of boring. That's not what the Bible means by heaven at all. The Bible talks about heaven as the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, where God will take everything that has been broken by sin in this world, and he'll cleanse it and renew it and resurrect it to brilliance, to be brilliantly what it always was meant to be. Which means that heaven is not a place of harps and clouds, but it'll be a place where there will be nations and government and, and human pursuits and culture and art and beauty and nature and all the, all, many of the things that tug so deeply on our heartstrings now that remind us that, that, that there's, this world is not as it should be. And when I look around at the world and I see um, just how completely at a loss we are for actually seeing politics and economics, and education, and you know, every single area of society actually functioning in a way that, that is good, that brings about human flourishing. What I think of is what I think of, man, like, won't it be amazing one day when the perfect king, in whom there is no deceit, or guile, or sin, is the one who's in charge of it all, where we'll finally see what it looks like for there to be perfect government, to see perfect society, under the, the perfectly good and righteous rule of Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why to see Jesus as both king and priest, the perfect model of, you know, quote-unquote, church and state coming together, 
is an amazing, amazing promise. And by the way, this is why Melchizedek is mentioned here. Now, who is this guy? Melchizedek is this person who's mentioned a few other places in Scripture. He's the great mysterious figure first mentioned in Genesis 14. And Jesus is said to be like Melchizedek here because Melchizedek is the only other character in the Bible who appropriately served as both a priest and a king at the same time. So that's kind of the connection. And so what that means is that the doctrine, the teaching of Psalm 110 is that Jesus has two offices. He's both priest and king. Um, And again, the question now is, well, so what? Um, Well, so everything. Um, This is really, really significant because, you know, if you forget about the two natures, you might be worshiping the wrong God. If you forget about the two comings, you might be living for the wrong kingdom. But if you forget about the two offices, you might be fighting the wrong battle. You might be fighting the wrong battle. Now, um, the reason I say this is because of what a priest is. So think about a priest. A priest is a mediator. Um, A priest is someone who's a go-between, between sinful human beings and a holy God. So like in the Old Testament, for example... Uh, if you wanted to try to come to God without the mediation of a sinful, uh, without the mediation of a priest, then you, you would have been struck dead. You know, God was was too holy to approach, uh, just willy nilly. It was only with the priest's help that you could draw near to God. And what the Bible teaches about Jesus is that Jesus is our perfect priest. That when Jesus be, became a human being. When he lived and walked on this earth, he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And that means that he was tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet he was without sin. Which means that Jesus knows what it is like to be human. He's, he, he, he sympathizes with every tear that we have ever cried. There's a verse in one of the Psalms that says that God has recorded each one of our tears in a special bottle. It's, you know, that's how precious it is to him. Which you know, means that Jesus can sympathize with us. And because of this, this means that he is uniquely qualified to be our high priest. To be our mediator between God and man. And one of the ways that Jesus does that is for interceding for us. Right now, like literally at this moment, Jesus is standing before his father and he is praying for us. For all of those who, who are believers. He's praying that we would, we, would, we would grow in him. He's praying that we would be preserved in him. He's praying that we, would be, we, that we would be protected, that we wouldn't fall into the clutches of the evil one. And what is so powerful about this is that if you don't recognize that Jesus is your priest, then you will always, always feel like you're standing on shaky ground. You know, the, the, the story that... that I think speaks so well of this, is the story of the Apostle Peter. So the Apostle Peter is a guy who's a bold man. You know, he's always the one who wants to step out in faith for Jesus. And sometimes, you know, he really falls on his face. And probably the top time that this happens for him is right before Jesus is about to die, Peter says, Jesus, I'm going to die with you. Like, you know, all these other punks, all these 11 other apostles, you know, these guys are pushovers, they're not going to be loyal to you, but I will. You know, I'm going to go to the cross with you, Jesus, if that's what it takes. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you know, are, are you really going to die for me? You know, is that really what a, what a courageous guy you are? And, and, and Peter says, well, yeah, of course I am, Lord. But Jesus tells Peter, he says, no, like, Peter, I tell you the truth, that you're not actually as strong as you think. And that before the, the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And that's, of course, what happens. But Jesus tells Peter something else. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. 
But I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. This is Jesus basically exercising his priestly ministry. What he's saying is that, Peter, one day you're going to discover that you're not actually as strong as you think you are. One day you're going to discover that your faith is not actually as strong as you thought it was. Your faith is going to feel like it's hanging by a thread and like you've utterly, fundamentally lost your grip on me. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Like Peter comes to the utter end of himself. And by the way, this is, I think, a lot of times what you wind up experiencing for the first time in your 20s, you know? Like you go to school or college or you get your first job and then you begin to realize like life is hard. You begin to realize like it's hard to navigate life. It's hard to, work, you know, to actually be in the job you want and to find a, a person to marry. You know, it's, it's, they're just disappointments. And, and many, many times those things can affect you spiritually. You begin to realize like maybe I'm not the super awesome person that I thought I was. And if that's all that you have to hold on to is just your own strength, then, oh my goodness, that's just going to be a very, very dark place to be. Because it's going to feel like every time you come to the end of yourself, you lost your grip on Jesus. But if Jesus is our high priest, if he's not just our king, but he's also our priest, then what that means is it's not a matter of how strong of a grip you have on Jesus. It's about how strong of a grip he has on you. You know, if you think about a ship and if there's a big storm out on the ocean, and if you take the anchor of that ship and you throw it inside the hold of that ship in the, in the cargo bay, you know, nothing's going to happen. The ship is going to be rocked back and forth by the waves. But if you take the anchor, you throw it outside the ship all the way down so that it, it hits the rock of the ocean floor and it grips a hold of that rock, that ship is going to be anchored fast. And when you look within, when you look to your own strength to grow in your faith or to progress um, in life, that it's going to be like that, that ship with the anchor inside of it that's just rocking back and forth. But when you look to Jesus and you realize that he's the one holding on to you, it's like the anchor has gone all the way down to grab hold of the rock, which is Christ. So that's why it matters that Jesus is not just our king. He's also our priest. He's the one who is literally right now making intercession for us. So we've just taken a whirlwind tour here in the course of probably 30 minutes of Psalm 110 where it's shown us the identity card of who Jesus is. He's got two natures. He's both fully God and fully man. He's got two comings. He's come once to, bring, uh, to bear judgment. And he's coming again to bring judgment. And finally, he's got two offices. He's both king and he's priest. And so uh, doctrine matters. I hope you can see this tonight. That like the things that you believe about Jesus, the truth of the Bible. It's not just a bunch of facts to memorize. It's not just a bunch of Bible trivia knowledge to show off. But these things, if, 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 you, if you grab onto them, will completely change the way that you relate to God. And so as we move into small groups now, um, let me just pray for us as we take all the truth that we've talked about tonight and really get to unpack it, make it practical, and um, pray that it really comes to affect us even more deeply in our lives. Uh, Father, thank you for this evening, and thank you for this great, amazing little psalm, um, just this little theological nugget um, buried in the Old Testament. Um, and Father, would you help us to um, just remember who Jesus is and to just keep going back to the truth of who he is. Um, Father, whenever we look within, um, we find despair. But when we look out to you, um, you've, just, you've made a provision, Lord, um, for everything that we need. 
And Father, help us look to Jesus. Help us know him. Help us trust him. And help us tell others about him for his sake. Amen.